0: Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash Conspirituality and use code Conspirituality to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus get $20 off your first order.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Conspirituality, where we investigate the intersection of conspiracy theories and spiritual influence to uncover cults, pseudoscience, and authoritarian extremism. And today, I should add to that tagline, white sovereign citizen Australians who believe that they are the true victims of colonization. Mm-hmm. I'm Matthew Remsky. I'm welcoming my guest, Professor Tyson Yunkaporta of Apolich Clan, that's West Cape, founder of the Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab at Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia. He's the author of Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. That's in 2019. Uh, and then released just this past week, "Right Story, Wrong Story: Adventures in Indigenous Thinking." Also, the host of an excellent free-range podcast called "The Other Others." Uh, welcome, Professor. It's a real
2: honor to speak with you. Thanks so much for taking the time. Yo, Matthew. Yeah, no, um, no titles. <laughs> we we don't do titles in our lab so i'm not a professor no one's a professor in there we all a, we all go on the same on the same level all right some people insist on it like but you know there're people who like don't get it <laughs> hey <laughs> so our discussion
1: today is going to drop about a week out from a referendum to be held in australia on october 14th and this was the fire behind my first email to you This pending vote sits on top of a deep and tangled history that I know you can help many people understand, including how some indigenous folks have found themselves aligned with white libertarians who love to use their language, their politics even. Mm. But before we get to that... I'll just take a few moments to cover the immediate news in a little bit of detail. So the referendum itself is on a question that has been burbling for decades and that one might think in this day and age of moderate and grudging concessions from Commonwealth governments towards their colonized peoples would have a simple answer. So the question is, should the Constitution of Australia be amended to create a body called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice? charged with speaking for indigenous issues directly to the Parliament, yes or no mm,
2: mm. Um, so is that basically it's, it yeah yeah it's just just speaking just speaking not not policy making or changing anything or anything like that it's just uh every now and then they speak and people people can listen or not listen in Parliament it's like that's what Parliament the parliamentary system is it's all people talking and no one listening so it's not much. You know, but it's like, I don't know, we haven't learnt yet what uh civil rights on Turtle Island, you know, w- what you've all learned over there, which is you've got to ask for, you know, it's the art of the deal, bros. You've got to be crazy and you've got to ask for 10 times more. You've got to ask for the impossible and then they'll give you the basic thing that you're really after. Right. So when we're after like, hey, can we have a voice? I mean, it's pretty simple. It's like, hey, can we come and talk in parliament every yeah. now? <laughs> um you know, so immediately, no, right? <laughs> no, you can't. And then it's a it's a hill for people to die on in a culture war. And it was the same as the national apology to Indigenous Australia. That took years. And we just asked for it once, and you know there was such a backlash against it that we all had to die on that culture war hill for ages. And then you know, it's the same thing here. It's a very basic thing. Um, You know, it's, and it's like, and some of us are voting no just because it's, hey, you know, we should be asking for our land back, (laughs) not just, hey, can we talk to you in your system? Can we come into your system and legitimize it for you and talk to you? And they're like, no, you can't. (laughs) Unbelievable. Um, anyway, yeah, it's a very minor thing, but we shouldn't have done, we should have gone with, hey, you should all go back to England, every single last one of you. And then they would have said, okay, look, you can come into parliament and talk to us. It's a bit like defund the police. It's like, defund the police. No, no, we won't defund them, but I tell you what, we'll try and stop shooting you. How does that sound? Yeah, it's kind of like that.
1: Now, as you say, the voice wouldn't be any kind of legislative body, let alone some you know, cabal of autocrats uh, gunning for the Constitution. Uh, we've got QAnon-adjacent influencers that have been hard Mm. at work trying to make this very basic human rights land back reconciliation discussion or a beginning of a discussion Mm. all about them. So they're saying that, you know, the UN is behind it and that they're aiming to establish apartheid in the country, that the voice will Mm. have veto power Mm. over the prime minister. Um, Mm. There've been pamphlets Mm. circulating from unnamed groups that link back to Sovereign Citizen or white supremacist websites. Mm -hmm. There's one group that created a a zombie clip of um, PM Anthony Albanese Mm -hmm. uh, appearing to affirm that once the voice seized control of everything, the UN would be seizing all private lands. And then there's this D-list Soap opera actor named uh, Nicola Charles, who calls herself the White Rabbit. Uh, and she made her name as a COVID contrarian, of course. Mm-hmm. And she's going on about the voice ushering in communism and shutting off your power. Now, your new book is called Right Story and Wrong Story. And I'm wondering if it's, you know, just safe to say from your point of view that these are all versions of, of a wrong story.
2: Yeah. Mm. Wrong story is unilateral. Uh, wrong story always has a a hidden meaning and a hidden agenda. You know, it's it's never what it seems to be on the surface. You know, um, and it's unilateral, so it's coming out of one group or uh, one person. You know, um, and so culturally, for us, where we have right story, right story is you know collectively uh, produced knowledge production that happens collectively and over time, and is tested, tested, tested. You know. Uh, like peer-reviewed, peer-reviewed, peer-reviewed kind of thing, but where non-humans are also your peers, and the land, sentient land, is your is peer as well. It has to sit within that landscape. It has to sit right, you know, within everything, because that's our methodology, you know. Right. It's our method of inquiry. So that's right story, but wrong story is is unilateral. And I guess traditionally, like so, in all of our uh, dreaming stories that hold a lot of our law, you see this wrong story coming through and identified as, um, yeah, unilateral. And usually it's about gossip that's there to undermine somebody or a false witness, you know, um, to, you know, distract people or to uh, get someone out of the way so that, you know, you can do something nefarious <laughs> that they're in the way of or something like this. So it's always bad faith. Um, and I don't know, for us traditionally, that's always been really, Easy to identify and very clear, um, but it's actually really difficult in the inf- information landscapes we currently inhabit, uh, especially information landscapes that are co-opting, you know, our uh, decades of, of decolonial and anti-colonial thought and scholarship and activism. Uh, that are co-opting all these in the same way that they, the right, ruined the word woke, right, uh, for black people on Turtle Island. Uh, they're ruining all. of the- <laughs> They're ruining everything from land rights to um, uh, land acknowledgement to everything, you know, everything that we've fought for and built up. uh, They're claiming as kind of nativists and, um, I don't know, kind of wrecking it.
1: That history of co-optation is what I want to get to, actually, because, Mm. I mean, for now, we don't know how the vote is going to go. Uh, polls currently are not looking yeah. good at the moment for the yes vote. Some reports are saying that support mm-hmm. has dipped below winnable levels, but that's yeah. really the tip of the iceberg. It feels like the referendum is, you know, on the top of something else. And I wanted to go back to see if we can look at some of the roots of of this twistedness because it's not as simple as blaming QAnon carpetbaggers, uh, because mm. there's a long history of reasonable and misguided, mm. at the same time, institutional distrust in these spaces. And you've pointed out yep. that Indigenous people in Australia are themselves not immune from very toxic misinformation. Mm-hmm. I was listening to a recent episode of your podcast, The other Others, and you said something really haunting. You said, you have to make sure that you're plugged into the right story of activism, the right story of resistance to know that you're not going the wrong way because Mm. there's lots of crazy ways you can go when you begin to resist. And there are a lot of charismatic bastards with different agendas.
2: Well, having, having, having been a charismatic bastard myself, um, yeah, it takes one to know one, you know, um, set, uh, set a bullshit guru to catch a bullshit guru, I guess. I have occupied that space and I have been, um, you know, a, a peddler of disinformation, um, unwittingly, you know, um, and I've occupied the position of being a, you know, ancient wisdom guru. Um, you know, a, you know, this is natural guru, you know, sharing, you know, my knowledge of land and all that sort of thing. Um, yeah. And, and this stuff sort of gets co-opted as well. You get that audience capture going on, um, and you find that your knowledge ends up in some strange spaces uh, with some strange bedfellows.
1: When we're looking yeah. at the immediate roots of how this co-optation emerges into an event like the referendum, I think it's really um, informative to discuss the legacy of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy.
2: Yeah, uh, for sure.
1: Which dates back to this amazing protest action outside of the old parliament in Canberra in 1972. Mm, mm. And it's now the longest continuous protest for Aboriginal rights in the world. So that's going to lead to a particular um, event in 2022, 2021. Mm, But can mm. you just give some
2: background on that? Well, I've, I've spent a lot of time at the 10 embassy and sitting down there. There's a fire that's been burning right from the start. So 50 years there's a fire that there's people, yeah, who are responsible for keeping the fire burning. So for a start, that's it's a it's a very sacred sort of thing that fire and and it has a real meaning, you know uh, it's hard to keep a fire burning <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of a city for <laughs> that long you right. know um yeah, and I, I've spoken to um, uh, one of the fellows who was you know one of the original uh, three fellows who set it up, and it was kind of a cheeky a cheeky idea of a loophole of you know well an embassy is so the american embassy in australia that's american soil you know it becomes it becomes the soil so the idea of on our own land setting up an aboriginal embassy <laughs> um which is a kind of a loophole for land rights because like well that's aboriginal land now <laughs> right you know where we've where we've enclosed this place you know and you know, 50 years, it's like, well, how does that work with, like, you know, um, possession and all this kind of stuff? And and that's in front of old Parliament House because I think because of the 10 Embassy, like, I reckon it was because of the 10 Embassy they had to make a new Parliament House elsewhere. Right. Because <laughs> they're like, we're going to have to move. We're going to have to move. <laughs> oh, the, pri- the value of our real estate's really gone down, like, since those black fellas moved in next door. Hey, right. So... um. You know, it, it was a it's it, it's really symbolic, it's really meaningful to us, you know. But if you think about it, is it's a very, very short leap from there to sovereign citizen thinking. Right. Because we're we're basically we're finding some kind of, you know, um Bush lawyer, you know, hedge lawyer, you know, half ass legalese, you know, all caps manifesto kind of, you know, version of law. You know to subvert that law, and um, you know to try and gain sovereignty, uh, to try and gain some kind of self-determination.
1: That's why you emphasise the loophole. Mm. We we did yeah, s- th- yeah. they they did That's something
2: what, sneaky there. They did. They did something sneaky. <laughs> they did something sneaky. But it's you know I and I always thought it was genius, and I've always loved it, and I feel it it sets me on fire when I think about it. Right. You know, and when we talk about it, you know and then the sovereign citizen movement happened and i've got aboriginal friends coming up and talking to me about the difference between public and private and you know and then that starts to come in along this idea of the difference between law and law so law l a w and law l o r e you know um which has always kind of been a, it's another linguistic trick that we talk about um, you know, because we talk about, well, you have, you know, the law LAW of the capital, of the um, settlers, you know, but we have this lore you know, it's just the traditional law, you know, of the first own, first uh, nations who live here. It's a saying of the elders, right? That's it. But then, then I, what's the difference between that and someone suddenly making a distinction between, you know, uh, between Commonwealth law and admiralty law? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. They're talking up this bullshit admiralty law or citing the Magna Carta or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And you find it's different where it lands everywhere, but it has some common threads, this sovereign citizen movement stuff. But in Australia, they use the L-O-R-E thing all the time. They use it when they're pulled over by police. They say, no, sorry, I don't live under, um, you know, Australian Commonwealth law. I, I live under the L-O-R-E of, of the land. I am a free man on the land <laughs> and I live there. ah. Oh. There's some jackrabbit bloody dodgy jump around thinking that's involved in that that um, I can probably unpack with you a couple of different ways as we go along.
1: If we go back to 1972, we'll have elders saying, mm. uh, I am not bound by the law. I live by the law. Mm. And it means something different yeah. from how it becomes sort of twisted and corrupted in this mirror world uh, blender. That's it. I guess you have to be tracking this transition from like like a real statement to a very strange and twisted mm. statement, or maybe that's the difference between the mm. right story and the wrong story, something that's responding to something real versus
2: something that is making something up. It's, a, it's about importation, and it's about... Um, you know, this has come across from Turtle Island, uh, from the US, you know, to Australia, and I guess as as comms have um, become more widespread between Australia and the US, and there's tighter and tighter cycles yeah. of uh, feedback loops between us and you. Uh, that's that's when it's changed, and right. so that's about I don't know a decade and a half ago, um, and for the last couple of decades, there's been a fellow, an Aboriginal fellow. Uh, so, uh, by the name of McMurtry, and he's been running around doing uh, sovereign citizen stuff for a long time. It was kind of mixed in with a lot of anarchist philosophy as well, as well as being mixed in with, uh, you know, um, uh, a lot of our 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 sort of legal precedents for native title, etc. Um, so Mabo, the mabo decision the Wick decision and these are these are big wins for us but it basically just acknowledges that we existed uh you know and had our own law before people arrived and i guess this makes people uncomfortable i can see why a lot of settlers would want to co-opt that law for themselves to kind of reinstate their own nativism which they feel alienated from yeah and and it's a long tradition it's as long as you know, there's been settlers as soon as, you know, anybody born in, the first people born in Australia, you know, from Europe, uh, as soon as they grew up, they were making nativist societies. And, um, you know what I mean by society, not the biggest society, but the you know, club, you know, a local hall right. with yeah. A nativist club or movement, you know, uh, so Australian nativists were people who were born here and, and therefore, you know, have this claim to this soil and they're of this soil, uh, they still have loyalty to britain but at the same time they you know have rights here and i guess people were doing that when you know it was becoming clear that you know even under the doctrine of discovery this was a um, uh, this was on legally shaky, shaky ground internationally, uh, this colony, like right from the start, you know, so that's why, that's why the settlers here, they cultivate relationships with the UK and with the US particularly, they cultivate, you um, know, relationships so they can have that support because essentially it's, you know, a white fellows colony on blackfellas land in the middle of Asia and they feel, uh, <laughs> they feel a little beset, right? you know, uh, the, 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 Great replacement has been a a concern here for about 150 years uh, rather than 150 months. Back to the
1: tent embassy, there was something really specific that happens uh, over December and January of 2021-22. So it's the height of the pandemic. And the embassy is infiltrated by sovereign citizen protesters and anti vax folks. And they set up their own tent and their own
2: fire. Is that what they did? Here's where it gets tricky because one in six of those people were Aboriginal. Mm-hmm. So they had that legitimacy. And they do. These people are very careful to cultivate um, relationships with vulnerable Aboriginal individuals. You know, and and call it a you know like a solidarity with community when it's really not. They just have a scattered selection of individuals that they've managed to um, brainwash and co-opt to their agenda. And uh, and these are
1: individuals who are vulnerable because they have have they lost family ties or they have fallen on hard times or well, they're...
2: we're all vulnerable. And as somebody who's been quite you know readily and easily radicalized over a decade ago, um, myself, um, you know is because it's all true, <laughs> right? You know, we've lived through like actual conspiracies, right? You know, they did and they do take our children. You know, we're still scared every day. Like I don't know, if we're having an argument, we're really worried about raising our voices too much because we know someone might call the police and we might never see our kids again. Right? You know, we're nervous when we go to the go to a hospital because we don't know if our kids are going to be taken away. Right? You know, we watch um, *Handmaid's Tale*. <laughs> That was my grandmother's life that was her life you know she lived that and you know and this was um something it's not something that's in the past it's something that's still happening now because there are more aboriginal children being removed from their families than at the height of any other time in australia's history right now at the height of what they call the stolen generations you know so they are like you know hashtag bloody taking the children you know um (laughs) you know, hashtag save the children for us as a a whole, you know, we see that and, you know, we're like, oh, these people have affinity with us. They, you know what I mean?
1: They know what's happening.
2: There were people in rooms on the other side of the planet who were making decisions about our country and who were making, um, you know, conspiracies around dispossessing us of our land and genociding us, uh, who were actually trying to, they had specific policies until, a few decades ago of deliberately breeding us out, which is why more than half of us look like me now. We can't scrape together enough melanin to scare off a taxi, you know? We, um, <laughs> we've um, we been like genocided like that, you know? So we've been through a great replacement. We've been through all these things. So when, you know, others are, are there and they're, they're talking to us and they're trying to make embassy with us and they're reaching out a hand, and they're sharing all these same conspiracy theories, and it's narrative, Matthew. You know, it's not like the communication we get from this government, right? You know, which is always, you know, it's it's not narrative; it's fact based, it's evidence based. You know, and it's boring, and there's no spirit, and there's no spirit. You know, and for us, everything is spirit. You know, so we, um, so these these settlers come to us, and they seem to be thinking like, like us. They're coming with story and they're coming with spirit. They have a story that has spirit in it.
1: They must have story and spirit because they don't have anything else. I mean, that's, it. that's, the, that's the paradox of the sovereign citizen jargon, actually, is that the mm. person speaking mm. it is only really going to get anywhere to the extent that he sounds credible because it's gibberish.
2: For most of us, it, it's not long before we see that as wrong story. Because you know, we all know what right story is, and right story is collective, collectively produced, processed, you know, um, and judged, you know. And so for us, it, it's very quickly it shows up as wrong story for most of us, but for at least one in six, <laughs> you know, we um, there, there are those of us who are uh, many of us become disconnected, you know, because of our experience of being in the settlement, in the colony, of having to move away from home if we want to find work you know, of having of being forcefully dispossessed and removed, um, of not being able to find community because, you know, our parents were removed or their parents were removed. So a lot of us are lost in that way and we're not processing information collectively. And so we can grab onto anything as individuals, if we're living as an individual and we're offered this individualized, you know, bespoke bloody narrative where we can just bake fractally into it, you know, whatever we want. Right and people are going to agree with it, and it's going to fit in, and it's going to feel like a tribe, it's going to feel like a collective. There's some of us who um, get sucked into that, and we get co-opted into there. And then, so your sovereign citizens are then able to say, you know, hey, look, we've got this. Uh, and you know what? They're not all primarily sovereign citizens either. That's, that's often, that's just one string to the bow, because there's several, you know, and, you know, there's more added all the time. See, these are anti-trans activists. These are COVID denialists. You know, these are anti-5G protesters. These are, you know, you name your poison, but they all weave together.
1: Are there some of those poisons that are, that don't have purchase within First Nations communities? Is there something that comes along that, where everybody says, uh, actually, no, that, that doesn't sound like we'd like to sign on to that?
2: Like I said, these... um. It becomes clear that this is disinformation, that this is wrong story, um, when we're collectively processing and discussing this and going through it. You know, um, it's people who are somehow in bad relation. So we talk about all knowledge is coming from being in good relation, yeah, because you are um, you're sourcing your knowledge from and you're an, you're um, fact checking your knowledge, but from several different angli- angles at once. You're polyangulating your verification process all the time, you know, and it's coming from, you know, it's coming from multiple sources uh, in vast collectives that must cohere with your traditional law as well and, you know, your sentient landscape and, you know, humans and non-humans and how we work in partnership and think and feel together and we feel our way through this all together and it's not long before we we realise what's wrong story and what's not. But if one of us happens to fall into bad relation, then we're vulnerable, you know. Um, and I know several elders, a lot of elders actually, who have become um, who have become lost, you know, and then they're vulnerable to these things. And so just for the example with the trans thing, you know, I know one senior lawman who um, has just sort of made up stuff about the old law. That will cohere with anti-trans, you know, law, L-O-R-E law, you know, um, like, okay, um, gay babies were strangled at birth, traditionally. Oh. Like saying things like that. Oh. And so straight away, the rest of us are, uncle, you gone wrong. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> think it through first before you make an assertion like that. At least think it through. How are you identifying these gay babies that you're strangling or drowning <laughs> at birth? Are you just looking at it and going, no, nah, nah, that's nah. <laughs> no, nah, that baby's gay. <laughs> Look at his wrist. Look at his wrist. I mean, what is it that you're looking at for a gay baby, Uncle? Think it through, you know? And that's how, I guess that's how, you know, things are supposed to happen. But that Uncle's not just talking to, um, you know, community, that Uncle's talking to a lot of weird um, settlers.
1: Who have scooped him up and given him a microphone on a podcast somewhere, right?
2: Oh, I know. And his his, his uh, opinion is valued. You know, in the colony, people he can see his capacity to change things in the colony. You know, these people are hanging on every word. And as long as he says what they're expecting him to say, they'll keep listening and he will be valued. And on it goes. And it is usually a he, by the way. Not always, but mostly, mostly he.
1: When you're playing out the uncle, uh, think it through. I'm, I'm imagining. Um, mm. Is is this in is this on somebody's front porch, or is it uh, like where does that discussion happen? And is it in real mm. life? Uh, and what's the response generally? And is there a process for that? Like, is is it is that formalized?
2: Yeah, well, it should be if that person is coming into the. Um, um, well, some, sometimes we call it mimburi, uh, so in Southeast Queensland. Um, anyway, the mob I'm working with on collective sense-making processes, uh, waka waka, et cetera, people from Bunyan Mountains, I refer to it as um, mimburi. Um, and so we, I'm, I'm only including that language word because uh, we're doing research around this, and it's it's on the public record. Right. But we all have words for these things, which means collective sense-making. You know and we're supposed to do that together in this process of yarning, and there's some ritual and ceremonial kind of yarning which is um you know it's it's really rigorous, and you know nothing can get through that 's bullshit it's it has to be real or it won't make it through you know is that the definition of the yarn there's provision for bullshit though, and he, here 's where it gets tricky in the colony because uh, a lot of our old people you know have a protocol. For when it looks like sacred knowledge is going to be stolen or co-opted, and so you know, and where they're being backed into a corner or forced or bullied into sharing, um, they'll make something up. Wow, okay, <laughs> yeah so so I, I think I think that's where a lot of this is coming from with our elders and and these uh, people they're very pushy these sovereign citizens. They're very aggressive, very pushy. So I think a lot of elders would share things with them that are made up. And this is a, and this is a protocol, is that you are under no obligation to share truth um, with a bossy person <laughs> or a rude person, that you are, yeah, you, you may lie to them. It's a protocol we have to protect knowledge and, you know, keep sacred knowledge safe.
1: And also to misdirect invaders.
2: Exactly. You get things made up. But these... Unfortunately, this starts to loop back into our culture uh, in these positive feedback loops that keep, you know, growing, uh, baking, baking, baking (laughs) into the circle. And there's no regulatory feedback loops traditionally that we have for that kind of, you know, um, hyper-bullshitization process. We don't have anything for that at that kind of speed.
1: And if it's oral, it would be assumed to... Only exist in the moment of its iteration. It's not going to stay around in a meme format, or it's not going to replicate itself yeah. in a podcast form, yeah. or or
2: in social media posts. Uh, we have we have permanent permanent ways of storing knowledge, data, etc. You know, uh, different thinking, ideas, innovations, etc. You know, um, you know we have processes for this of right story, but like science, it can take like a decade. Or four decades, you know, to actually determine whether it's true or not, you know, whether a vaccine is effective, or um, you know, whether vaccines cause autism, right? You know, I, I can remember seeing Obama uh, say that, you know, uh, there are indications that uh, vaccines m- might cause autism. Right. I can remember him saying that, and McCain saying that yeah. in the same week. Mm-hmm. Um, that was forever ago, and it took it took a decade to be able to assert definitively, no, they do not. You know, uh, science takes a decade and in, in the same way in our culture. You know, it's a rigorous process, so it takes at least a decade. Right story. Wrong story takes 10 minutes. 10 minutes to, to breed like a little white rabbit and, um, you know, bang out 10 copies of itself, all slightly different. Um, you know, and then go off into the world exponentially.
1: There's something about that speed that comes up in uh, an episode of yours that I was listening to where you are speaking about weeping in a bookstore mm-hmm. while you're gazing at the books of a late indigenous elder who had been captured by this movement during the pandemic and who had died of COVID. Yeah. And this is somebody who you described as producing a lifetime of work in preserving and restoring the stories and the art forms and the relationships. And so when you say the person who becomes vulnerable is the one who falls out of right relationship, mm-hmm. that's happening to leaders as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I'm wondering, you know, I know you may not want to to name him, but in that particular situation, was the sovereign citizen discourse, or were the conspiracy theories, or were his, you know, settler—I don't know—seducers? Um, were they just too wily for him to parse out? Mm. Did he not have that ten years of mm. testing uh, the story to see whether or not it was true? Yeah. Um, or did he did he get overwhelmed by the internet? Should he have not had a phone? Like, what what, what do you think went on there? I'm still investigating this.
2: Right. I, I don't want to. I only don't want to say his name because um, it hasn't been that long, and yeah. uh, I haven't heard whether or not the family's happy happy for his name to be um, spoken again yet. That's our custom that we have. Yeah. You don't speak the name of someone who's passed away for up to a year afterwards, Because right. that shadow spirit has to be uh, has to has to not be attractive back to anything familiar, and so that it can just dissipate. Shadow spirit being like almost like your ego. Right. This ego that just keeps lingering. Like a, a crappy shadow, and, and we want it to go away. Um, part of the investigation is um, uh, like have he was he was part of a religion, and, and that that religion also um, it it emphasises, uh, you know, democratic processes um, at at every stage of every decision. So um, I don't know, it, it didn't look to me like that was what was causing, you know, uh, the weirdness. So he ended up as as an anti-masker, COVID denialist, um, all the rest of it. Um, over COVID, uh, it, uh, amazing elder with very, very strong law. You know, someone who it was the keeper of so much, so much sacred law. Uh, someone who still was carrying out initiations. You know, which is you know it's a rare thing. You know, to have somebody doing that authentically. You know, on the continent now. Um, you know, most of that, most of that, um, that Bora process is gone now. Uh, so it's very rare to see someone doing it. So he's very special, very treasured elder. And, um, yeah, died of COVID while denying that COVID existed. And, you know, um, swearing black and blue that the, the vaccines were here and part of the New World Order, et cetera.
1: While appealing to lore.
2: Yeah. Right. Exactly. While also carrying sacred lore that's right story. Um, also carrying this long wrong story around um that killed him i mean so it killed him so i'm standing in this bookstore i have i, I was already had tears coming out of my eyes before i started crying because my autistic 6 year old was on my shoulders we we're in the bookstore cuz he was screaming because he and and he needs uh uh the hungry caterpillar uh, storybook so i raced into a bookstore to buy it to try and stop his meltdown in the middle of the street. And so I'm looking across the shelves while he's ripping the hair out of my head and screaming and everybody in the bookstore is looking at me. Oh. So I already had tears screaming down my cheeks just from the hair getting ripped out. <laughs> and then I see this one and uncle's there. And I'm like, oh, and I didn't even know that he'd written this book. And it just all hit me at once. And I'm like sobbing in the shop. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. You know, there's a body count. There's a body count for this stuff. And these bastards, they co-opted his law and they took it for themselves. And and it now it means nothing. You know, it, it means less anyway. It's like the... It's really hard. <laughs> it's hard to describe why it's wrong. You have land acknowledgments there, eh? Yeah, we do. I can uh, talk uh, through this land acknowledgement. Um, yeah, please. This brand isn't. It uses a lot of sovereign citizen stuff, but it's it's the full raft of you know pretty much whatever comes out of Infowars that week uh, <laughs> comes out in the email chains that they send out. Um, so, and this is a this is a good friend. I don't know. I don't know if they're a good friend. I think women would be women would be used to this, this feeling that I'm about to tell you about. I don't know if you've ever experienced it. Um, but there's this wolfish way that people will look at you and they're being friendly, but there's, they're thinking something else that's a bit disturbing and it it makes you feel nervous in your gut. I think women would know what that feels like. Yeah. (laughs) If they've got, you know, someone who's being friendly at work, but they're, there's this kind of wolfish way that they look at that woman because they're thinking something else that's quite aggressive. They're going to take something. Yeah.
1: yeah. I use the word seduction to yeah. describe how does this uh, how is this elder drawn in.
2: It's not really seduction, it's more pickup artistry. It's like those incels and stuff that do the pickup artist stuff. It's uh it's wolfish. It's it's predatory.
1: I think that's a paper you've got to write is settler pickup artistry.
2: I know. Well look, I could write a paper just just uh, just analyzing this, I'm, I'm going to read this out to you. Okay. So this is a land acknowledgement, what you would call over there. We call it uh, acknowledgement of country. Um, so this is from um, a settler who is, uh, I don't know if you've ever come across these uh, neo-peasants. I haven't seen any analysis or inquiry into this, but it's quite a big movement. Anyway, um, so this is neo-peasants from, uh, and they, they live in Jajawurang country. Um, anyway, so here's their acknowledgement. Uh, we live in Jara Mother Country. So that's really weird because they've taken a language word Jara yeah. from Jarawang language, and they've renamed that country Jara Mother Country with all caps. Anyway, um, the first language spoken here is Jarawang, which translates as Yes Yes Speech. Jara and First People communities in this bioregion continue to come together and perform rites that are both ancient and contemporary. These rites acknowledge the land and culture as sacred, giving and renewing. Um, that sounds nice, doesn't it? It sounds great. But you look at it, they're not actually acknowledging Jaja people. They're acknowledging that some people speak Jar Jar language there. Uh, but uh, they, as a settler, they're not a settler anymore. They, they live on Jara mother country. And then they name themselves as a Jara person because they say Jara and first people communities. Oh. So they've separated themselves and named themselves with a language word from that country. And then separated the first peoples are another group. And we are this group which is named with that language (laughs) anyway. So we both live in this, in this and and they call it a bioregion. It's not a territory. Yeah. You know, we live in this bioregion and, you know, we perform rites ancient and contemporary.
1: So it's not the indigenous people who were there before, but somehow the
2: language precedes everything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This idea that, you know, we're native to this place. Uh, not even necessarily having to be born here, but in actually mm, living on the land and trying to improve it with uh, all this permaculture, etc. You know, and there's there's another thing. You know, per- permaculturalists are, um, you know, I mean, they're, they're, you scratch a permaculturalist half the time, and you have got a Nazi right there. You know, a lot of the founders of permaculture were, um, you know, very much you know, white ethnostate sort of uh, crypto-fascists, you know. Right. And that that came out over COVID too. You see them, you know, a lot of these you know, grandfathers, godfathers of, of permaculture, you see them marching alongside white supremacists and spouting the same kind of nonsense. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah, so these are people who are sort of claiming the word through permaculture, uh, the, the land through permaculture, and their relation with that. And they're sort of coming into relation that way. And now they're all for this mother country. And then, yeah. I don't know if they're still attached to the fatherland from before, <laughs> but they're here. They are in the mother country.
1: There is something very weird and metaphysical and spiritual bypassing going on with the mm, with.
2: There really is it, it, a political bypass.
1: Yeah, poli- well, those things are merging. It's it's like the phrase that's coming mm. to me is is in the beginning was the word. Uh, that somehow if we, <laughs> somehow if we, can, if we can identify the, yeah. the resonance or the vibration of the bi- bioregion, oh, that that's God. what's original. Yeah. And if we can take that yeah. on, then we don't really have to bother with the people who are actually here. Because they, yeah. if they are here and they have a connection with the bioregion, it's because they're yeah. vibing as well. Right. Not that they've preserved it, not that they've learned it, not that they have, uh, told stories about it or figured out it's, it's various gifts, but that, um, everybody who lives there and can identify with that Mm. is there because they can share in the vibration of the sound and the word. It just
2: occurred to me. I I read that. I read that to you out of an email signature,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, but the content of the email itself, um, was all about accusing me of being a farmer colonist. <laughs> and uh, you know. Yeah. Because that's because that's flipped. Yeah. Right. Okay. And oh completely. Right. And just, just this uh, you know, and that's um that was due to my like I've I i do not know, I finally responded with a with, you know, questioning this person's thinking and going, look, you know, every email you send me is like 24 hours after I hear the same thing on uh, Alex Jones on Infowars, Right. and you know this, this anti-trans paper that you've you've just sent me, that's um you know you really need to look into that and where all this messaging is coming from. And they've responded, I don't know, you know, very nice people, but um, have then responded quite aggressively. And um, well, they 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 would say that I'm being aggressive, right, you know, by questioning them and also by colonising them. Uh, by uh, not agreeing with the anti-vax and anti-trans and, and all the rest, RFK propaganda getting sent to me, <laughs> right? Yeah, from a permaculture guy living down the road in Australia. You know? So,
1: so as a public intellectual, uh-huh. they're expecting you to side with them, you know, openly, mm-hmm. and then and then because otherwise, because otherwise, you're part of the problem.
2: But it's it it is all about uh, is the ad ad hominem attacks, right?
1: You know, I'm going to assume that this will be the the first time that we speak together because you have uh, so much to say about so many things that our podcast should be better on. Uh, you know, like the real essence and place of indigenous epistemology and these questions of like how Mm. we know the world and trust or don't trust institutions
2: Ah, and
1: science and governments. Anyway, you're definitely, I hope that we can meet again, Mm. but to Mm. come back to the, to the referendum for a moment, um, I wanted to ask you about whether you feel that conspiracy theory, culture of fascination uh, with let's say trafficked children um, mm. is actually a way of stealing fire from the real history mm. of you know the way in which mm. indigenous children have been treated, or whether mm. the great replacement theory is a way of stealing mm. the story of genocide. It's it's like um, the the dynamic at play in Australia seems to be that as soon as some part of settler culture gets close to a moment of self-recognition. A portion must revolt Mm -hmm. and sabotage the project. It's like Mm -hmm. we get right to the edge of voting on simply allowing uh, there to be a committee to speak to parliament. And that is a step too far because somehow uh, it will force us to reevaluate our entire history. And so there must be a sabotage. Is that what you feel in some way is happening.
2: Well, you had me at stealing fire, you know, because straight away I have to acknowledge that I'm on Boonrong country and that part of the um, big story, traditional law here is a kind of black Prometheus story. Wow. Fire belongs to women. In most of Australia, fire is a woman's, a woman's thing. Um, and there are stories in the law here and, and elsewhere, all over Australia, of men stealing fire, From women uh, in in dreaming, you know, and it's a cautionary tale, you know, it's a cautionary tale of um, uh, lustful people who have no right to something, Um, you know, people who have not earned or do not have the law, you know, to be able to possess something, uh, trying to possess it. Right. And what happens to them as a result, the punishments that happen and then the processes and protocols that are in place afterwards to make sure that doesn't happen again, you know. um, Yeah, so, you know, upshot is today fire is available to everybody, but there are respectful protocols and ways that you deal with it and any decision-making around that and any ownership questions of that, it comes back to women and women's law, you know, uh, same thing. And you think about all of these mostly men in terms of leaders, you know, of uh, disinformation cults, um, yeah, you think about these mostly men and they, and they co-opt uh, women, you know, to vigorously support these things, as most religions do as well. And they co-opt the very minorities that they oppose, um, you know, individuals from those minorities, you know, you can see the same cautionary tales emerging, and I can see from all this wrong story, uh, right story emerging down the track, uh, potentially too late. Um, this Indian fellow said to me the other day that this is all right because it's um, this creates evolutionary pressure <laughs> that um, that forces us all to have more rigor and develop to develop systems that have more rigor um, and that are more sustainable and that this is all evolutionary
1: pressure towards this. Extremely optimistic. I like that view. I would like to speak to that
2: fellow. Yeah. Except that I had to mention that he would – did you see there? I I had to mention that he was Indian? (laughs) It shouldn't have mattered where he come from. But straight away, I'm like, "Why? Well, yeah, he's coming from this ancient <laughs> Vedic tradition, so it must be true." <laughs> yeah. Ah, but you and I both know that's where um half of the Bannon, Steve Bannon stuff comes from, <laughs> the same place. Oh my God, let's flood the zone with shit.
1: Mm. My last question is: is um, you know, October 15th is going to roll around, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of what happens. What Will indigenous people have to keep on doing?
2: Uh, we just have to stay alive. <laughs> I mean, most of us are in survival mode. Um, we we have a middle class now. You know, you know, grew up as children in survival mode, but now have been able to um, scrape together a bit of capital. Uh, and this is the first generation that we have, where some of some people have managed to have capital. Um, I don't, um, but I hope. I don't know, I hope to be able to go some way towards that so my kids can have some capital uh, down the track. Um, And I guess we just have to keep doing that. You know, you must join the system um, and be destroyed by it in a few decades or um, you can fight the system and be destroyed by it now. Um, So, you know, we genuinely (laughs) have a problem with the institutions that run our lives. And, you know, and we genuinely have frustration with it. But, you know, even we're not stupid enough to say burn it all down <laughs> right now because, you know, the collateral damage from that would be huge and it would include most of us uh, going down with it. Mm. Anyway, a lot, of our, a lot of people identifying themselves as our, as our allies uh, seek the destruction uh, of, you know, their own system. And um, I think they see themselves as arising from the ashes as the new masters um, of this land and of having some kind of uh, claim to it that is, you know, (laughs) correct. But uh, yeah, what do we have to do? We just have to keep surviving. We have to keep the old law going. Mm -hmm. We have to make sure we hold on to the right story and keep propagating that.
1: Tyson, thank you so much for your Mm -hmm. time. Um, no worries and uh,
2: I really look forward to speaking with you again yeah yeah it takes time eh? (laughs) I hope you can cobble together something that makes sense at all (laughs) absolutely I will
1: thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Conspirituality Podcast we'll catch you back here on the main feed or on Patreon
2: An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov slash extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.